Oh, my sweet dear listener, how I have lied to you. I didn't mean to do it, but uh, I told you that Squirrel was going to be on the next episode last time around, which would make it this episode, but uh, he's not here this time. It's just me, Johnny. This is another early morning impromptu coffee-sipping quick blast album review podcast, uh, this time for Jack White's new record. It's out next Friday, um, March 23rd. It's far and away the most abstract, experimental record Jack's ever been a part of, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, that's, That's barely the half of it. I'm the biggest Jack White fan I know. Um, and this record is an experimental fun house that was way more challenging than I expected. After, uh, after the first listen, I was enchanted, I was annoyed, I was disappointed all at once. Uh, where are the songs? That's what I kept asking. Like, there seems to be no linear structure or form to this record. It's a schizophrenic collection of, of gorgeously produced weirdness. You should count how many times I say weird. I guarantee you it's going to be a lot. Uh, I mean, only a couple tracks are fully fleshed out songs in the proper sense. Like to those of us who've always loved his, his creations throughout, you know, the confines of, of Jack's self-imposed, um, you know, limitations, it's a little bit of a heartbreaking wake up call. Cause whoever said his path was going to be linear and recognizable, he comes from the white stripes. He went into his solo stuff and has been increasingly expanding and, you know, changing things up as time has gone on. So the end result of this is what I would imagine a record would sound like if Orson Welles, Nikola Tesla, Willy Wonka, and Mr. Rogers all made a record together. It's, it's fucking weird. It's great. It's edgy, but it's very disappointing if you're sitting down expecting to hear a straight-up rock record. Uh, there's jazz, piano, drum machines, synths, conga breaks, spoken word passages, um, crazy jarring edits, just this general air of whacked-out weirdness. Uh, there's weird, again. <laughs> there's just a lot of what-the-fuck going on, you know, these contradictory elements that tug at one another. And... Um, it's all lightning bolts and sharp angles, you know, and, and Jack's always been good with that, with that aesthetic, but this, uh, this takes it to a whole other level and challenging is, is an understatement. Um, like the song corporation, he's yelling, who's with me at the end of each section, these punchy angular rhythms and upbeat superstition style funk to, uh, to the keys, very, very Stevie wonder vibe, uh, lots of hand claps. But the shit gets old, like a, a solid minute and a half before it ends. You're kind of like, all right, all right, I've had this flavor. Like this has to drive to something. Um, I do like the little minor return beat at the end. And that's a, a redeeming quality. But yeah, overall, it was one of those things. It, it took me five or six listens before it before it stood out as a, as a composition of its own, as opposed to what felt like an unfinished idea at first. And I think even I, I read the quietest review. It was the first review that I saw hit. And... Um, it was a very negative review of the record, and I think it said overall the thing felt unfinished. So it took a few listens to to get through it. You know, there's a a song called "Get in the Mind Shaft" where there's this bewildering dramatic open word or spoken word opening um, that builds into this hot little slow funk rhythm and uh, tosses in some weird Daft Punk vocoder vibes, like not what you would ever imagine Jack White doing. Super ridiculous, very weird. Then for a song like uh, Abulia and Acrazia, uh, there's a spoken performance by a guy named C.W. Stone King. He sounds like like a drunk Woody Harrelson reading a poem in you know Civil War time. And get the fuck out of my ears, please, and thank you, because it's just not it's not a song. It's something that you would hear in a, a something cinematic. It's it's 
it's where I started to realize that there's a good batch of these songs that would be good slices out of like a, a Tarantino Western or some old, old tragedy or some old wartime film while others are a, a marriage of buzzing electronics and analog uh, buttons and, you know, the, the old saloon vibe of songs like, you know, guess I should go to sleep or even on and on and on. Uh, they're just not there anymore. Um, if you're longing for, for the songs, some shit to sing along to you, you're going to be disappointed. Um, I don't know if you remember last year, last April, Jack released the the song Battle Cry as just a, a single. And that would fit perfectly on this record for all its oddity. Uh, at the time, it, it felt like just a big what the fuck stamp on the forehead. You, you know, it, it didn't it didn't feel like a song. It felt like Jack was just noodling around and, and fucking around. But that was, was actually the intention of his, his build here. Um, you know, over and over and over is is the first real recognizable rock song in its proper sense on the record. There's a, there's a, a, a jittery, snappy, very fast volcanoes blowing vibe to it. Um, like, like black back, black bat licorice. Uh, if you remember that song, like there's a, there's a definite kinship to, to that. And before, before it got included on this record or recorded for for this record, apparently Jack had uh, tried tracking it with the White Stripes, with the Raconteurs, um, over you know the course of several years, apparently, and even filtered it through this old abandoned project uh, with Jay Z that we've been hearing about that that Ray Ban song, and uh, he said he was just going to hand it off to his grandchildren. He, he told Rolling Stone in this interview, uh, he said it was, it was sort of my white whale. I chased it and chased it. And finally, all of a sudden it worked and work. It does. The song fucking kills. Um, that song standing alone could have opened the record and blown people away. And then I think they would have hated the rest of the record. I'm glad that it was buried somewhere. What, what track is it? Over and over and over, two, three, four, five, six, six. So track seven, yeah. So you get seven songs in before there's a real upbeat rock jam that you know you could hear opening the show uh, at a Jack White concert. So Jack's always had this this self-imposed discipline on technology and aesthetic, and um, it seems at some point in this process he scrapped the idea of of doing this super lo-fi element uh, and went in the total opposite direction. Like, we all read the stories about how he started the new record by making demos in a rented apartment, you know, one bedroom in Nashville, this little spot where he recreated his four-track studio setup from when he was 15. I mean, this guy goes the fuck all out. Like, you, you, you got to at least admit that. So he went out of his way to begin songwriting in his head without instruments, and it seemed like the next logical step of his analog obsession, you know, to, to limit himself. And he had, I remember doing, he did an interview where he was talking about Michael Jackson. He had read how Michael Jackson would craft some of these songs, you know, all of the pieces in his head and then sound them out. And you can hear it. And I think the, the, this is it CDs, the, the extra tracks they have where you can hear the demos where he's making the beats, making the sounds of the various sections and instruments with his mouth as he's explaining what the song's supposed to sound like. Um, so apparently, Chris Rock, of all people, was the one person who fucked Jack's head up about this process that he's had forever. Um, Rock did a, a set at Third Man Records down in Nashville at their little event space and was talking to Jack about the way he makes records. And apparently he 
you know, saw the tedious process of the experience and was dismayed by it. He's like, nobody, nobody cares how it's fucking done. He said to him. And, uh, that apparently had a profound impact on Jack. Um, he said, and I quote, I wish he wouldn't have said that to me because it's haunting my days because I've built my whole artistic creativity on this, but he's right because nobody fucking cares. Even musicians don't fucking care. You know, that reminds me of a story Jack apparently once told, um, this uh, Radiohead producer, Adams for Peace fixture, Nigel Godrich, uh, that he was mixing a Dead Weather album without automation. Um, it's this console technology that goes all the way back to 1973, blah, blah, blah. It's hardly newfangled in its you know tech. But the mixing, mixing the record without it meant Jack had to have an engineer and himself on hand to nail every little tweak, every little change in real time as it was happening. Uh, you know, he said we would get two minutes in and be like, oh, fuck, I forgot to turn on the reverb and, you know, on the fucking vocal at the chorus. Now we have to start all over again. And Godric was like, what the fuck? Why were you doing? Why would you do that? I mean, <laughs> that makes no sense. Jesus. So all complications aside, White self-produced this record, um, which was recorded in Nashville, Third Man, also at Sears Sound in New York and at Capitol St- Studios in L.A., uh, but he's definitely showing signs of embracing these newfangled contraptions of the modern age. Um, I found it very surprising. He's playing Eddie Van Halen's new signature uh, guitar on the record, the Wolfgang, and that's an instrument specifically engineered to make things easier for the person playing it. Uh, that thought abhorred him, which is why he said he'd ultimately decided he had to embrace it. Um, you've got to give the guy credit for making himself uncomfortable for the sake of art. I sure as shit do. Uh, there's also, what was it? Uh, he also uses a, a St. Vincent signature model too, a new one. And he, he marveled in some interview about how shitty and hard it was to play. <laughs> um, so take take that as you will. But most impressively, for the first time ever, um, Jack has started using Pro Tools on the tracks. Uh, I can only imagine what what that must have been like walking into the studio with Jack. The first time he's jumping into it, like, you know, Grandpa Simpson or an Amish toy maker with, uh, you know, grumbling about knobs and clicks and, and shit. But if if you look at the angle or the album through the lens of somebody who's just been given a whole new toy box to play with all the odd experimentations of the record make a lot more sense um like like with this song hyper misophoniac it it sounds like you're shaking spray paint cans in the beginning while while there's some you know mechanical fun machine starting up uh there's a hot little beat that kicks in but the fucking the rest of it is like hospital beeps and odd electronic squeals and he's saying nowhere to one no nowhere to run when you're robbing a bank says it over and over again um shit is weird so yeah he jack got out of the one bedroom nashville apartment and went to la uh and he he went to record with musicians he's never met uh, especially percussionists and rhythm players who've come from a hip-hop background and a, a funk background like drummer uh louis cato uh, who worked with beyonce q-tip and john legend you got bassist neon phoenix who's worked with kanye lil wayne jay-z um dj harrison on the synth as well as Anthony Brewster of uh, from Fishbone, The Untouchables, Neil Evans on the keyboards from Soul Live, Talib Kweli, and Quincy McCrary from Unknown Mortal Orchestra and Pitbull, percussionist, percussionist, yep, percussionist Bobby uh, Allende, uh, who's done work with David Byrne and Mark Anthony, as well as Justin Perry with Oza Motley, 
there's just it just goes on and on. Backing vocalists Esther Rose and uh, Anna Regina McCrary of the Nashville uh, trio, the McCrary Sisters, as well as longtime collaborators like Daru Jones, uh, who's worked with Nas and Talib Kweli. The guy's a fucking monster, and Carla Azar who's uh from autolux uh, she's worked with depeche mode and others as well and she's incredible uh, this is a wide range of collaborators especially from such a, a deep hip-hop background it definitely infused the spirit of the record with fla- flavors that they range from everything from miles davis to funkadelic uh you can you can hear it it stands out on damn near every song but one of the strangest little details about this record uh, is that it features a cover of a song written by the legendary gangster Al Capone. He uh, Jack bought a musical manuscript last year that was written by Capone and Alcatraz when he was there uh, in the 1920s. It's called Humoresque, and the lyrics are not what you'd expect from a mobster. <laughs> you you thrill and fill this heart of mind, you know, like... Uh, with gladness like a soothing symphony like these are not words you would uh, attribute to somebody who is you know this cold-blooded murderous um idiot uh apparently he had a, a very low iq um so the song apparently a, a take on a, a dvorak work turns out to have been recollected not composed by capone so uh he was like the dj khalid of his time i guess Maybe, maybe not. But uh, um, White still ended up recording it uh, as the closing track to the record. Uh, he was moved by the idea that a famous murderer had a weakness for such a gentle, beautiful song, as he called it. Uh, so, you know, he said human beings are complicated creatures with lots of emotion, lots of emotions go- going on. Excuse me. Uh, oh, lots of I got choked up just talking about it. Lots of emotions going on so that they are. Yeah complicated fucking creature which makes it that much more fascinating that the guy doesn't even carry a cell phone you know but um anyway let me go back and frame all of this album testimony with my own fandom a little bit i could walk you through the trip to third man records down in nashville a bunch of years ago getting a personal tour from jack and actually getting my own record made with him it was part of this contest that i won through the radio it was fucking incredible uh that was the same day i tamed a wild bird out of the blue that's a yeah that's a story for another day (laughs) where i could tell you about the uh impromptu session in the woods at outside lands where jack rolled up unannounced and played to our stone little wood nymph selves with a, a surprise performance or about our interview for the uh, documentary It Might Get Loud, where we swap sunglasses, Jack and I. Um, yeah, we'll get to all those stories at some point. But all of it drives to the point that Jack made me believe in the surviving soul of rock and roll. Um, he really did. And to drill it deeper, to put a finer point on it, uh, it was Elephant by the White Stripes. That that really was the catalyst for that. Or rather, one specific performance. Uh, it was darker, uh, more aggressive and focused than the three records that came before it this this elephant album i remember listening to it on my way out to coachella um in 2003 and just realizing that it eliminated the concept that white stripes were a a gimmicky act in the candy cane colors you know it exposed the broader scope of of the creative vision that we would eventually see in full bloom you know with this record but uh their Coachella set changed my life in, in 2003. It was one of the like three or four shows that blew my fucking mind in such a way that it just scraped the whole slate clean. 
uh, doing no no small pa- part to the fact that uh, Jack was furious. He couldn't hear himself in the monitors. It was very windy, and he said at the time it sounded like a plane was taking off in his ears the whole time. So imagine a, a super angry Jack, unable to hear himself, channeling this frustration into this searing, blistering performance that uh, was fucking amazing. It just eliminated everything I thought I knew about a man expressing himself through a guitar, an amp, and a microphone. Asterisk. Or woman. The electricity of, of that moment, of, of certainty um, that he'd hit this unstoppable stride, it was, it was very thick in the air. I'll never forget that. Um, An elephant was the reason. It was the sound of a legend that was coming into full bloom. Um, you know, I, I, speaking of the white stripes, thinking about back then, you know, I'd be surprised if there's a fan out there who doesn't have a small little yearning place in their heart for Meg's, you know, side cocked head and basic metronome beats with, you know, with her eyes nearly closed as she was focusing on the performance. That's uh it's an iconic image for anybody who's been a fan for, for as long as I have, you know, anyway. But um, this album is the dividing point where you cannot draw a line between the past and the present anymore, even in theory. Um, he just mines the past pretty thoroughly for aesthetic purpose, but it's a very different angle now. Um, he's just, he put a candy crate, candy cane bouquet on that, that gravestone. And we're, we're not going to be seeing the white stripes again. I would put hard money on that. So back to the record. If you, if you set aside tracks like ice station zebra, where it's on full lockdown that Jack white cannot rap. Um, <laughs> this this record is going to be a late bloomer to most fans. Even a track like uh, es- Esmeralda Steals the Show, it sounds, it's almost like Handsprings, if you guys remember that. Um, the, it's a B-side. If you haven't heard it, look it up. It's an old White Stripes track. Um, it's like that song slowed down and romanticized. There's a double vocal speaking. Um, not a big fan. There's a redeeming depth and nuance to it that requires many more listens. And I'm looking forward to doing just that. I like it way more now than I did a few, you know, listens back my first time around. But it's it's not something you would put on a mix um, of of rockers. So so anyway, um, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where this record takes me as a fan, as a listener. Um, I'm about nine ten listens through right now and i like it more but like i said there's only one song on there that's really truly rocking that stands out as like oh fuck yeah this is a jack white track that i've been waiting for um so make of make of that what you will but uh yeah so that that about seals it boys and girls i'm looking forward to a fresh cup of coffee and a shower and starting this day getting rid of this weed hangover um they are they're definitely real. Uh, they're de- they're nothing like alcohol hangovers, but don't let anybody tell you they're not real. If you go hard enough the night before, you wake up feeling sluggish, you have a headache, and so on. You feel a little stupid. It's not the most fun. Uh, usually a coffee or a little smoke of the dog that bite bit you sorts that out. But uh, let's see how disgusting this coffee is now. Oh, it's not so bad. Well, anyway, on that note, you sexy bitches, I think we've come to an end. Uh, if you are a White Stripes fan and you've forgotten about the song, or if you're a, a more recent Jack White fan, there's a song by Marlene Dietrich that uh, you should check out. Um, the White Stripes stopped into uh, the late, great 
John Peel, uh, his radio show back in 2001, paying tribute to her during this phenomenal performance that um, captured a strong sense of where the pre-elephant White Stripes band was um, and where they were going to go. They covered this this uh, this actor. Marlene Dietrich was this, this goddess of the screen, very strong woman, angular jawline, beautiful, unbelievably beautiful woman, um, German-born actress. And you, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on the end of this so you can hear it. Um, it's Marlene Dietrich is a name that's really unfamiliar to anybody but our grandparents' generation. Um, but she cut this path of fierce independence, uh, relentless reinvention of herself at a time where you got to remember women were seen but rarely heard. You know, uh, she had this brash attitude and a, a confidence that directly threatened the status quo, especially in this homebound, subservient, you know, woman culture of of the era you know uh she had quotes for days um there was a quote um that i always loved of hers that said darling the legs aren't so beautiful i just know what to do with them and the song uh look me over closely really captures that energy captures that sense of of confidence and swagger and sensuality but also a knack for grace and beauty and uh let's Let's close this out with a quote from Ernest Hemingway. Marlene would be 118 now, so um, that that puts some time context into this. But he said, if she had nothing more than her voice, she could break your heart with it. But she has that beautiful body and the timeless loveliness of her face. It makes no difference how she breaks your heart if she's there to mend it. I think that's pretty fucking beautiful. So you guys have yourselves a great day, and uh, we'll catch you next time around on the Anaquiet Podcast. Oh, look me over closely. Tell me what you see. The lady likes to look her best before she pulls the tape. You see a shot and stood it down. That makes the evening sun go down. Oh, look me over closely. Tell me what you find. But don't be over anxious. Cause I'm not the Marion kind. Well, I'm a poor in a storm and you will harbor where it's warm. In my arms, you will hide from the great big world outside. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh. But when you come and see me, don't try to change my ways. You have a thought within my heart, and there you'll always stay. There's room for all, love for all. But don't blame me if you fall. So look my over closely. And then make up your mind But darling, please remember this I'm warning you <laughs>
Oh, well, I may be the 